stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode six of Unknown Orbits, the little black bag by C.M. Kornbluth. I'm Steve Reitze. I'm Patrick Barrett. Now, the little black bag is a story that's uh, it's been reprinted a lot. It's a very good story. It was originally published in the July 1950 issue of Astounding Science Fiction, and the author, C.M. Kornbluth, was only 27 years old at the time. He was known as being a, an extremely good writer from the earliest years. The story is about a disgraced alcoholic doctor who finds a mysterious medical bag. Now, the bag was more or less accidentally transported from the far, far future, and it's a future where the vast majority of people are morons with just like a small percentage of geniuses who are watching over them. And one of the results of that is that a doctor's medical bag does all the work. It's, it's got fantastic super science in it. It can do miraculous cures and you don't need any knowledge to, to operate it. So this alcoholic doctor finds this object and he recognizes what it is and he starts to use it. He ends up partnering up with a local woman to open a clinic where they start to be known for doing miraculous and, and simple, fast cures of people. This gets a lot of attention from the local press. They make a lot of money. Uh, and after a while, the doctor decides that he's done enough. He's personally recovered. He's helped a lot of people. And he feels that the bag is too important for him to have. And he wants to pass it on for examination and study by scientists. And that's when the rest of the plot happens, which I'm not going to give away in case anyone wants to read it. I highly advise. It's a fantastic story. And in, in particular, I like the beginning. I'll get to that later. Now, this story is very popular. It's been reprinted almost an uncountable number of times. I I didn't bother counting, but it has to be 40 or 50 different times. And it was honored in 2001 with a retro Hugo Award for Best Novelette. Now, Kornbluth himself, he displayed an advanced stylistic and storytelling instinct from his teens on. He started writing, I think he was 15. He was a member of the Futurian Society in the 1930s, along with Frederick Pohl and Donald Wolheim. A little later, both Wolheim and Pohl became editors of their own magazines, and Kornbluth became a regular contributor to both of them, contributing so many stories that he was doing it under a number of pseudonyms. Then the war came. He went to Europe. He was a machine gunner, and it was theorized that carrying that machine gun all over Europe ended up damaging his heart and contributing to his early death at the age of 34 in 1958. When he returned from World War II, he did continue writing, but he didn't go back to science fiction until uh, around 1949. One observation in Seekers of Tomorrow by Moskowitz was that that science fiction he wrote showed a, a, a certain snideness, uh, a sneer, a hint of blackness that was unique to him. That blackness existed in his writing from the beginning, but after the war, it 
was much more apparent. Now, Kornbluth was known as being a little bit odd. Frederick Pohl, Damon Knight, and Isaac Asimov, each in their respective biographies and accounts of the science fiction community in the 30s, confirmed these stories. For example, he never brushed his teeth, and they literally turned green as a result of that. So he had a lifetime habit of holding his hand in front of his mouth while speaking so people wouldn't see his teeth. He didn't like black coffee, but felt he should drink it because he thought professional authors were supposed to drink black coffee. So he went on a campaign of training himself to drink black coffee by putting slightly less creamer in his coffee every time until eventually he was drinking black coffee. Kornbluth decided to educate himself by just reading through an entire encyclopedia, which I find amusing because in Isaac Asimov's biographies, one of them, I think was the first one, which might have been In Memory at Green, Asimov said when he was younger and got a hold of a set of encyclopedias, the first thing he did was to read it cover to cover. One result of this is that as Kornbluth learned little bits of esoteric knowledge from the encyclopedia, he would incorporate them into his stories. Frederick Pohl told a story once where Kornbluth mentioned a, an ancient Roman weapon called the ballista. And that's when he knew that Kornbluth had finished reading the A volume and had moved on to the Bs. You know, actually, that wasn't uncommon. That's how all these encyclopedia salesmen made a living back in the 1940s and the 1950s is going door to door selling encyclopedias was the idea was it was it was like reading the Bible. Anybody who considered themselves to be a true Christian, a serious Christian would, of course, they would read the Bible front to back multiple times. So a, a devout Christian would always be in the process of rereading the Bible from front to back. And a lot of uh, parents would buy their, their kids uh, encyclopedia sets with the idea that their kids would read them like they read the Bible and gain all kinds of knowledge by doing that. As a boomer, I can tell you the main purpose of an encyclopedia was to copy stuff out of it and put it into your book report or your, your homework assignment. Um, okay, I need a 500-word essay about Romania. So you'd either go to the library or if your parents had bought encyclopedias, you'd go to the R volume, you'd pull out Romania, and you would literally write word for word pretty close. In my case, I was already a writer, so I was smart enough to rewrite it a little bit. But most kids would literally rewrite the encyclopedia entry and just turn that in as their homework. So I'm not sure what lesson that was teaching America back in the 1960s, but it wasn't the one that was intended. Let's put it that way. Well, thankfully, in the age of Wikipedia, kids don't do anything like that at all anymore. Yes, of course not. I did want to give a little perspective to that. No internet, no Google, no Wikipedia. You're sitting in your house, and the only source of information was the encyclopedia. Absolutely. Yeah, if you had one in the house or one at the library, other than that, other than that, it's just asking your uncle Jim what it was like being in France and trying to learn from that. <laughs> I wanted to say the reason I picked this story is from a sequence which is never included in any television adaptations, as, as far as I, I can tell. There's an exception. We will talk about the television adaptations later, but for the moment, I will say the British show 
out of the unknown. Yeah, thank you. The first five minutes is missing. So we don't know how they started it, but it seems like television likes to skip over the beginning of the of the story, which is when the drunken doctor is walking down an alley with his jug of wine in a bag, trips on something, drops the bag, and it breaks. That section by itself is beautifully written to the point where you can almost imagine Cornblue sitting down and saying, I, I just have this thought and writing the whole thing out and then just saying, okay, filing it away and then using it later. Because it does kind of stick out as a very poetic, separate sequence from the rest of the story. And that's the part I fell in love with. I mean, to me, it's very similar to a type of story, kind of a category of science fiction story for me, which is business is business, where fully two thirds of the story is about the absolute minutia of this person's business. You know, you're really getting into their head, into the small stuff. I hope I'm not making too fine a point about it, but I just love the fact that the whole world in the story is focused on him carefully picking the bits of broken glass out of the broken jug of wine to recover the bottom couple inches in the broken glass and then drinking it. I just think that is brilliant writing. I, I agree. I, I really like the story a lot. And, and that's one, one of the things that I really like. It's a fantastic introduction to a character. I would say if you ever wanted to learn how to introduce a character, this is this is a story that would be worth studying because it, it tells you everything you need to know about him. And, it, and it's literally all it's about is him staggering home through an alley with a jug of wine and he drops a trips over something and drops and breaks a good jug of wine. That's really all it's about. But it's several pages long. It's beautifully detailed. And it's a great, great introduction to the character. Really, really beautifully done. I agree with you 100%. Of course, the rest of the story is also great. Yeah, I, I love this story a lot. It, it, it works on a couple different levels. Um, it, it works as a satire. It works as a social commentary. It works as, as just a great character study and a, a human examination of the human condition through characters. And it's also kind of rare, as far as I know, as it's almost like a hard-boiled science fiction story. It's almost a, a, a black noir story because just like in a hard-boiled or noir story, the characters are, you know, losers at the bottom of society in sort of a corrupt world and and when I say a corrupt world, I'm including the future world, um, which we can go into a little bit more detail uh, at some point. But it's it's a corrupt world or a broken world, broken characters, and they finally get a chance to get ahead. I mean, how many classic noir movies have you seen where it's a couple? And a guy and a girl, and then and they're desperately trying to make this play that if they can just make this play, everything's going to turn out right for them finally. And they're going to be on the sunny side of the street. And of course, by the end of the movie, it all falls apart. And it's and it's heartbreaking and it just breaks your spirit. And that's that's the kind of story this is. 
And it's really rare to see that in science fiction. Uh, and I, I'm hoping that I can find more examples of it as we go. But it's just a beautifully written story. And if that wasn't enough, it's also a great example of how to do a sort of a twist ending and do it right. It, it's not one of these cheap gimmick twist ending stories that are endemic, not only in science fiction, but in all literature of the period. It's, it's very much a beautiful little twist at the end that kind of punctuates the story and, and delivers that hard-boiled noir unhappy ending. So I, I love this story. I, I truly, truly loved it. It's funny you say that. After the war, until 1949, he wrote mostly detective fiction. It shows. It, it, it reads like a hard-boiled crime story from the era. It, it really does. The structure of it reminds me of Nightmare Alley, of course. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, Where the Sidewalk Ends with Dana Andrews. I think I have. I'm not sure. What's the basic plot of that movie? A con man settles down and marries a nice girl and then gets involved with a not nice girl. So he's, of course. it's the pull of the two different lives. That's not that's not dissimilar from maybe the greatest noir movie of all time, Out of the Past. Yes. Directed by Jacques Tunor, starring Robert Mitchum, um, where that that's a great example of the couple, the doomed couple that is trying to, to get away from and get over on uh, the, the gangster played by Kirk Douglas. And at the end, everything just falls apart. And it literally probably the perfect noir movie. Um, probably the greatest one ever, but there was a lot of, I mean, there's a early movie by Fritz Lang and I cannot remember the name of it, but it featured Henry Fonda and it was a Bonnie and Clyde type story. Really? And, and, and that went really grim at the end. And that was like in 1936. So this is before the era of, of hard boiled noir movies, but it was an early example of, of that dynamic of the doomed couple trying to to run away trying to get they were trying to get to canada i think that was their 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 goal was to, once they got to canada they were free and of course they were like steps from the border and they're killed and it's bleak and wonderful you know and that's in the story it's it's it, even though the doctor and his female assistant don't have a romantic relationship there is a classic sort of a noir relationship where she's blackmailing him and preying on him to try to, to get money out of the deal. And he goes along with it because it, it helps him out. And of course, that relationship at the end of the story becomes the thing that is ruined for both of them. I love it. Detour, I think, fits oh the mold even closer. God, that's the most nastiest noir of them all. That movie, that is a, that is a, dark grimy movie that is one of the all-time greats i gotta see that again yeah it's boy oh boy i can't say enough good things about that movie now as for the little black bag i'm not sure if i would agree with your description of it as a twist ending i would say it was a very structured ending it's sort of a twilight zone you get what's coming to you sort of a ending absolutely so it's not, it is a little bit of a twist, but it's probably more accurate to say it's sort of a 
heavenly justice sort of yeah move uh, story where the bad person gets it in the end. Yeah. Now, one aspect that the again, I'm referring to the television. We're going to talk about that separately, but the none of the television adaptations, as far as I can tell give the true nature of the future world that Kornbluth wrote about. Right. I, I believe that. It's a bit problematic. The view in the story is that in the far future, the world is, and I, I don't have the numbers. I'm, I'm off the top of my head. It was something like four or 5 billion morons with an average IQ of 40. And then a few hundred thousand super geniuses that are, inventing things and arranging things so that all these billions of idiots can live without killing themselves. That, that part of the story is, is very funny and really a biting satire. Uh, it's, it's the same idea that you have in the movie idiocracy that everybody's really stupid and it's a miracle that they're not all dead. And in, in this particular story, the, the, the vehicle for keeping them alive is that the handful of geniuses basically set society up so that it runs itself without much hu human intervention. It's very funny. I particularly liked how the moron doctor in the future reacts to the loss of his bag. It's, it's, it's exactly like idiocracy. It's the phrasing. It's beautiful. Now, what's interesting is that Frederick Pohl suggested to Kornbluth that he write a story about that future world that we only get a glimpse of in the little black bag. And he does. Um, he changed it up a bit by having a current day person wake up in that world. I mean, it's just a gimmick. I actually like it as a more creative gimmick where someone is gone to the dentist, gets an experimental anesthetic, the drill short circuits, he gets a shock, and then he's frozen like a statue and ends up getting buried with a plaque, kind of explaining everything. And someone in the far future finds him and is able to awaken him. It's Rip Van Winkle. Yes. Did we say the title? It was The Marching Morons, which was published in April 1951 Galaxy, which would put it less than a year after The Little Black Bag. The gimmick is that the far future... It's filled with morons and just a few super geniuses, and the super geniuses consider this a problem, and they don't know how to fix it. The modern-day person who wakes up in their world, being a modern-day person, he has an approach to the problem that they don't, to trick all the morons into going to Venus, where they will step out of their spaceships and immediately die. <laughs> they like this idea. <laughs> Okay, I need to read this story. This sounds hilarious. It also is a commentary on advertising. A lot of the, the writers in the late 40s and early 50s, they worked in advertising. So in The Marching Morons, this guy has experience with advertising and convincing idiots to do things. But instead of buying shampoo, he's convincing them to go into spaceships. He also has memories of Nazi Germany and uses some of the techniques there of saying, oh, well, after the first few ships go, we'll just fake up postcards from them saying how much fun they're having at the happy camp to encourage others to go. That sounds brilliant. The ending is, I don't know. I don't know if you could have come up with a really creative ending to that. I, the ending is kind of 
obvious. I guess I won't spoil it here. Please don't, because I haven't read it yet. It's worth reading. You piqued my interest. (laughs) Some people say the marching morons, and to a lesser extent, the little black bag, actually advocated eugenics. I've looked into it a little bit, and I can see where the argument comes from. I don't think the stories push it to that extent. I think it's a comment on society. Unfortunately, he doesn't directly oppose the idea of eugenics. He's just playing with the idea. If you want a more academic view, there's an organization in Canada that I ran across called the Eugenics Archive. On their website, discusses the marching morons, and they say, in their opinion, that is a satire that incorporates themes of eugenics, but is not in favor of them. They say, by the end of the story, the intelligent people of the future discover that they are not truly superior to the morons that they got rid of. Having read the story, I'm willing to believe he's not a eugenicist. I just don't quite see what the eugenics archive sees in the story. But I, I will agree. I don't think he was. I'm willing to defer to their authority. It was a popular topic among early science fiction. The super science stories, you know, how many of those featured a superhuman the protagonist, the super scientist, you know, I mean, those, those were in their own way promoting the other side of eugenics, I guess, is the, the superior man. And that, that's maybe a topic that we'll touch on at some point in the future in more detail, but that would be the other side of the coin. Maybe I'm getting a little too deep into it. None of the television adaptations of the story went into any of that. The far future, when you see it, is highly advanced and intelligent. They drop that whole world of morons thing. Well, one of these one of these uh, adaptations was the, the most recent one, which was Night Gallery in December of 1970. And I have a vague memory of this particular episode, perfectly casting Burgess Meredith as the alcoholic doctor who finds the bag. Perfect casting. Night Gallery was fairly important to me. It tends to get a bad reputation, a bad rap, because it doesn't measure up to the Twilight Zone. You know, Rod Serling was the the host of Night Gallery. He contributed some stories to Night Gallery. A lot of them were just leftover Twilight Zone scripts that never got filmed. And the thing is, I, I was too young to watch the Twilight Zone. I, you know, I was an infant when it was on the air originally, and when it went into syndication, for whatever reason, Milwaukee didn't didn't have it in syndication anywhere. So I never really got a chance to watch it until a few years later. And but I did I did grow up watching Night Gallery, and that was perfect timing for me. I was a you know tween, early teenager, and. It was it was much more of a horror show than the Twilight Zone was. It was a lot more monsters and ghosts and vampires. And some of it was humorous. Some of it was very serious. Some of it was not good. I will I will grant that. But I would say the best of Night Gallery was as good as anything in the Twilight Zone. A couple episodes in particular that were very good. The one that I just sticks in my memory and really well, there's two of them. There's the earwig episode. Do you, did you remember seeing the earwig episode? Just the very word earwig tells me what the story was. It's an old, 
it's become kind of a trope on the internet. It's kind of like Alamagusa, I think. It's it's a it's probably an older story that got retold a bunch of times. It's a really awful story, with with a really great actor in the in the lead, uh, Lawrence Harvey, very good actor. I'm guessing and, it ends with, and it was pregnant. Yes, that's okay. yeah, that was the stinger, and then the other one is, in my mind, one of the greatest moments in horror and television ever, starring John Carradine, and it was called Big Surprise. And I won't go into it, but it's it's a short, nasty, weird little story that at the end does have a big surprise. So I'm willing to bet that the, the Night Gallery adaptation of this story was probably pretty good, especially since it had Burgess Meredith in the lead. I guess the the twist in this one is instead of having a a young woman who's kind of scheming to blackmail him, his partner winds up being another alcoholic bum. The same sort of dynamic happens at the end where everything falls apart slightly differently, but it's pretty close. I wish I wish I had access to the Night Gallery episodes. I would love to go back and rewatch this one in particular. You know, the thing is, is I never got into Night Gallery probably for very childish reasons. We were a little younger than me. It might have been too scary for you. It was the aesthetic I didn't like. I loved Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, and Night Gallery was in color. And it had big sideburns and flared pants, and it was very, it was the 60s in places. And to me, all those things did not equal a cozy spooky the way Outer Limits and Twilight Zone did. Oh, yeah, it was, it was very much... That was the era right before, right at the beginning of the era where you began to have movies of the week, made for TV movies of the week. So it, it had that made for TV feel to it. I don't want to say it cheesy is too strong of a word. You know, it, you could tell everything was filmed on a back lot somewhere. And it had Leslie Nielsen and all of the TV stars of the era were on that show. James Franciscus, you know, and oh, uh, he died. Tony young. Franciosa and all of these guys that had two or three TV shows throughout the 1970s. And they were all on there one time or another. Burgess Meredith is a personal favorite. I, I loved him in this because I did see this night gallery and I loved him as an old drunk. Uh, and and some, like some of my favorite roles that he played was The Last Chase where Meredith played an, an old drunk. Uh, and of course there's Rocky, which he did he a played great an old job. Drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, then there was uh, a grumpy old man. Grumpy old man where he played an old drunk. Yes. <laughs> and he was actually a really fine actor. <laughs> you know, in my opinion, to this date, to still to this date, even with the new Batman movie, still the greatest penguin, penguin ever. Maybe I should mention for the record, the other adaptations. Tales of a Tomorrow, the episode is available through the Internet Archive, as well as most of the episode Out of the Unknown. Of all the shows, I would say Out of the Unknown was the best adaptation, even with the missing part. Night Gallery would be number two. Tales of Tomorrow would be number three. And then there's another one that I was not able to see. I'll see if I can pronounce it correctly. It's a Polish show. Let me let me try it because I'm pretty good with my Polish. Teatr Telewiczitz. And the episode title? Sarna Wolocheska. Let me try it. Now I'm just gonna <clears throat> put on my best voice here. Let's let's try this. Teatr Televizji. And then the episode was called 
czarna walizeczka. Okay. Well, that was really good. There is a website you can go to for text to speech in Polish, and you can even download it as an MP3. So, any final thoughts on the little black bag? I would advise people uh, to read uh, it. Just, It's good. Yeah, me too. It's a terrific story. You know, if I was putting together an anthology for young writers of a collection of short stories, this is one of the stories I would put in that anthology because I think it has a lot of really valuable lessons for a writer in it. As I said before, how to introduce a character in depth and the different levels that the story operated on at the same time. There's a lot in there that, that any writer could really benefit from by, by reading it and studying it. I actually would like to see an anthology like that, but not just one that says, read these stories, one that explains why the story right. is good, what you should look at. I'm glad you picked this one because I think I had read it years ago. But rereading it, it was it was a joy. Well, I guess that's it for episode seven. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Steve Reitze. I'm Patrick Baird. Keep watching the skies. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.